ready, he stands. I am so glad that uh, you have chosen to be here together with all of us today. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Heart of Life, and I am honored today to be able to share with you in just a very special moment for those of us who follow Jesus a day that we remember something that changed everything. If you are not a Jesus follower, but you were willing to share with us today the reason that you're not, I would tell you that most of us in the room after hearing you, would probably say, we understand. I mean, maybe your reason would be something like you were just never exposed to what Christianity is about. You never, you never grew up hearing that. Or maybe it would be you were exposed to Christianity, and that's actually the problem. It was the people who claimed to be Christians who treated you in such a way or someone you loved in such a way. Maybe your own family did that to you, or maybe it was the church that you grew up in. And I'm saying if you told us that, there would be a bunch of us in this room that while you're saying it, we would be doing this, but eventually we would do this, and we would say, we understand. We understand. But if you and I were like just having a conversation, like maybe over a cup of coffee, all right? You like coffee? I love coffee, all right? So we're having a conversation over a cup of coffee, and you say to me, Jeff, I'm going to let you take your best shot at convincing me to consider Jesus. All right, this is not me pushing you. This is just you inviting me. Take your best shot at convincing me to follow Jesus too. I want to tell you where I'd start. Now, where I would not start was trying to defend all of the church history, I'm talking about the stuff that's just ugly, not just stuff that happened like on a weekend, but seasons of history where the church, I wouldn't try to defend it. That's not where I would start. In fact, I wouldn't even try to defend the particular people who called themselves Christians who did whatever they did to you. In fact, I probably would not even start with the Bible. Now, hear me clearly, I love the Bible, I believe the Bible, all of it, I believe it's absolutely trustworthy, we're going to look at, at, at that today, but that's probably not where I would begin with you, because I would want to begin at the beginning, and at the beginning, there were thousands and thousands of Christians before there was a Bible, like you have now. And so with one opportunity, this is where I would start. I would start with the event that we are celebrating today, the resurrection. That's where I would start. That happened before there was a Bible, like you, you hold it and you could hold it in your hands today. People started believing Jesus rose from the dead the morning Jesus rose from the dead. 
That's when they started believing. When he arose, people started doing exactly what you would have done. All right? Put yourself in the place. You know a guy. You see him die. You know where he's buried. But three days later, you can have breakfast with him on the beach. You would do exactly what they did. They took it to social media. That's what they did. I mean, social media just blew up. All right? Now, Obviously, in that day, we're not talking phones. They had to go first century style, which means they talked and they wrote. But that's where I would start by telling you, we believe Jesus rose from the dead because of social media. We do. I'm talking about people like Matthew. Matthew, who was one of the followers of Jesus, he was one of the 12. He followed him wherever he went. And after the resurrection, Matthew says, I'm an eyewitness. I saw it. And so he began to write down an account of what he saw, of exactly what happened. I'm talking about Mark. Mark was probably a Greek, one of the early followers of Jesus. He wrote out a chronological account of exactly the events that took place. I'm talking about Luke. Luke says in what he wrote in the very beginning, I have thoroughly investigated these things in great detail so that you can know precisely, even in chronological order, the account of Jesus' life. And then there's John. John, like Matthew, he was, he was one of the disciples. John was one of the first guys to see an empty tomb. And oh my goodness, did he talk about it for the rest of his life? And then when he got to be an old man, he's like, I got to write these things down. And so he began to write down in detail exactly what he had seen. I'm talking about Peter. Yeah, Peter was the guy that denied Jesus, but he was also the guy that Jesus forgave. You think Peter told anybody about that? He told everybody that he could possibly find. He even wrote letters talking about what he had experienced, how he believed. And then there's James. Now, this one's a little unique. I, I, I like this. James was actually the brother of Jesus, like grew up in the household with Jesus. And so the question that I often pose is, okay, what would have to happen for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? And you're, you're thinking in this moment, man, my mind can't even get close to what would have to happen for me to think my brother is the son of God. That's my point. That's my point. Now, James doesn't follow before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, he becomes one of the leaders of, of the early church, and, and he writes. He believes. And then there's Paul, okay? Paul started churches all over the Mediterranean rim. Everybody believes Paul believed. Here's my point. When Jesus rose from the dead, all these said he rose from the dead. They all believed. But I would even go further than that. And I would encourage you, if we were just sitting down, across the table, drinking the coffee, to consider this guy. You're like, I didn't know he was a disciple. He wasn't. 
Nero was actually a Roman emperor. In fact, he's usually one of the few Roman emperors that people can name, right? In the trivia show, when you're asked, name a Roman emperor. Nero is usually one that the people are able to come up with. Now, we're not that familiar with the details of Nero's life, honestly, most people can't tell you the laws that he implemented or the wars that he won or, or his very famous mother. People don't know any of that stuff usually. They just know two things about Nero. I'll tell you the first one. He burned Rome. Remember that story? He's the Roman emperor that burned Rome. But here's the second thing we know. He blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians for it. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is just history, that the Christians then were persecuted. So here's my question to you. Just as we begin this conversation, do you know why Nero could persecute Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection? Now, let's just leave the question, and let me bring you through this. Many, many people have studied how long it takes for something to become a myth or a legend or a fable. All right, we're talking about how long does it take for something to happen and then over time that thing gets exaggerated to the point that eventually people believe something that didn't really happen but it's based on something that sort of happened. How long does it take for that kind of thing to happen? And everybody agrees, it takes at least 60 to 80 years for that to happen. And the reason it takes so long is primarily because all the people who witnessed what actually happened have to what? Die. All the people who know the truth have to die. And then once they die, people can make stuff up about what actually happened, and then the thing grows, and they're believing something that didn't really happen, but it's sort of based on something that kind of happened. History tells us Nero, when he burns Rome, he needs somebody to blame. There are thousands of Christians in Rome, people who believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now, come on, in college, in higher education, you, you hear it, it's like people are saying, look, this whole the Jesus thing, it was just fabricated, right? The legend just got bigger and bigger, but it wasn't really true. I'm telling you, 30 years after the resurrection, there were thousands of people in Rome who believed that Jesus rose from the dead which means 20 years after the resurrection. There were thousands of people in Rome who believed he rose from the dead, which means 10 years after the resurrection, there were at least hundreds of people in Rome who believed it is impossible for there to be enough time for a myth to even develop. It's not how history records it. And so there's really no question people who were there, they believed. And when that happened, these things that were written down, the social media that began to fly in every direction, they began to copy those things. And eventually, it was gathered together into what we call the New Testament, the things that Matthew wrote and John wrote and Peter wrote. It's what we call the New Testament. All that came about about 200 years after the resurrection. And then somebody said, hey, let's take the Jewish scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. To Jewish people, it, it is the scripture. And let's combine that with the Christian scripture, and we'll put a piece of leather around that, and we call it the 
Bible. But I'm saying that took some time for all of that to be gathered and developed. Do I believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells me so? Absolutely. I do. I absolutely trust God's word to be true. But I'm also telling you, and I'm asking you to understand, it gets even bigger, even better, even, it's more than that, I believe it. Because Matthew saw it, and he wrote about it, and then he died because he believed it. Peter, he saw it, and he wrote about it, and then he died because he believed it. Now, come on, you can get a group of people together and try to fabricate something and say, hey, here's the story we're going with. Everybody go with this story. That works until somebody says, you ready to die? And somebody will break. Nobody broke. They saw it. They believed it. They wrote about it. And they even died for it. So when some professor tells you it's a myth, I'm telling you, it's likely he hasn't done his homework. Because the evidence is overwhelming. If you measure the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in the same way that you measure any other event in history, there is no way that you can simply dismiss it as myth. It is worth your consideration. Now, I'll tell you that as Christians, we have not gathered around the world today to simply celebrate the fact of Jesus' resurrection. We have gathered around the world today and we sing like we're singing today and we celebrate like we celebrate today because of the implications of the resurrection. The fact is, if this happened, it affects every part of our lives. If this really happened, this changes everything about how we operate, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how, how we entertain ourselves, how we mourn, how we love. This changes everything. On Easter morning, there is an encounter between Jesus and one of his followers. And it is so precious. It is so powerful. It is so emotional. It is the story that I'm going to share with you today that I believe captures the energy and the implications of what it means to live believing Jesus rose from the dead. So if you've got a Bible, you can go there. John's going to be our source today, the Gospel of John, so you can go there. But I'm going to set it up for you. And before I tell you the story, you need to kind of know what's going on behind the scene. So John is the Gospel. I'll tell you in a minute where we'll be. John is the Gospel. In a minute, here's what we'll see. Now, two things in the background. The Jewish nation is really anchored in two promises that they believe God has made to them. One, the promise of a Messiah. Perhaps you've heard the word. It means a deliverer. They are looking for one that God has promised who will come and he will set them free. All right? 
And along the way, over the years, there were politicians that kind of became powerful. There were military leaders that became powerful. But in the end, they all fell short of what a Messiah was to be. There were wannabes, but the Messiah has not yet come. And then there was the promise that God made to Abraham, which was 2,000 years before Jesus, that he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless your family. Your family is going to become a nation, and this nation is going to bless all the other nations of the earth. Now, that's kind of a wild promise because nations typically don't bless other nations, to be honest. They didn't in that day. They typically conquered each other. At best, they used each other. That's kind of our world, right? It looks like we might be blessing, but really, we're kind of using one another. It's like, what can we do to get... That's what nations do. So two promises, a Messiah and a nation that will impact the world. So fast forward to the first century, and Israel, this nation is under the power of Rome. Rome's thumb is upon them, all right? They can't bless any other nation because they can't even bless themselves. If ever there was a moment to be delivered, this would be the moment. And the strangest of men walks out of the Jordan Basin. He dresses funny. He eats funny. He smells funny. You know him as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And the Bible, we are told, I mean, these guys record it. Thousands of people came to hear John, even though he smelled funny. It's like, we're going to hear him. Even though he dressed funny, it's like, we got to go listen. We're told that even, it's, it's said all Jerusalem went to hear him speak. And the religious leaders are really nervous because they're like, oh my goodness. This guy, he speaks and everybody follows, but oh, he can't be the one, right? He, he smells terrible. It's like he can't, be the, he can't be the Messiah, right? And so finally they get up enough courage. It's like, hey, John, are you the Messiah? We hope you're not the Messiah. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Like, oh, great. We hoped you weren't the Messiah. But he said, I have come to prepare the way for the one. And there's this dramatic scene. You saw the movie. John's standing waist deep in the water. And there's Jesus. And he declares, behold, behold, not the politician, not the king, not the warrior, not the lion. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus steps onto the stage of history, and the world has never been the same. When he preaches, it is with such authority, people cannot forget what he says. When he teaches, he uses these stories. They are so remarkable. We call them parables. He just, incredible teacher. The crowds would just gather, and they just got bigger and bigger and bigger. The religious leaders get nervous because what if the crowds get so big that then they begin to, to, to revolt against us? And the religious leaders got jealous because they couldn't pull those kind of crowds. They wish they could, but Jesus seems to be able to do that. And then they get angry like the day that Jesus looks at those religious leaders and he says, you all put on a good front. And you look like you're good with God. He said, but you're hypocrites. And you're going to hell. 
That didn't go over so well. But the final straw was when Jesus strolls into this little village called Bethany. Where a man named Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus raised him from the dead. The crowd went crazy. And the religious leader says, we got to do something or the whole world's going to believe in him. And so the story is he was betrayed by a friend. You know the story. He was condemned by the temple, condemned by the religious leaders. He was crucified by the Roman Empire. And he was buried by two men who would not associate with him publicly when he was alive. Now, you understand when crucifixion took place, there was typically no burial. That's not how it worked. It was a part of the humiliation of crucifixion. They would peel you off a cross, drag you through the city of Jerusalem to the south side where the city dump was located called Gehenna. They would throw you in the city dump where you would either rot or they would burn your body. Except for the occasions where sometimes you could go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and bribe. We don't know what these two guys had to do. All right, I'm saying I don't know if they bribed him or not. But they got Pilate to agree to give them access to Jesus' body. This is Friday. It's almost Sabbath, the holy day. You can't be burying somebody on the Sabbath. And so they quickly begin to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They sealed the tomb and they left. And here's what I want you to understand. On the day Jesus was crucified, on the day Jesus was buried, everybody, everybody unfollowed Jesus. Everybody. Not because they didn't appreciate, right, what he had taught, because it was incredible. Not, Not because he didn't make a difference in their lives. He had loved them like nobody else. But listen, Jesus had made claims so much about himself that when he died, it undermined what he had said about himself. I mean, if you say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, uh, you, can't, you can't die if you're the life. If you say you're the resurrection and the life, then you, you can't die. Right? Messiahs can't die. And so after the, after the crucifixion, after the crucifixion, there were no followers. The game was over. Nobody standing outside that tomb counting her down. Ten, nine, eight. Nobody's doing that. Nobody. And get this, all the social media, everything that's written, nobody writes themselves in as the hero of the story. Nobody says, everybody else didn't believe, but I always believed. I never stopped. Nobody writes themselves into the story that way. Because nobody's expecting a resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 1. That is the setting in which this story is told. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, so the Sabbath Saturday ends as the sun rises on Sunday morning. That's the way they measure days, not midnight like we do, right? Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now Mary was a woman Jesus had healed. She became a follower. She loved Jesus. I mean, she Believed, but on this morning her heart is completely broken. But she's so grateful. 
for what Jesus has done for her. She goes to that tomb hoping that somehow she would be able to get in. We're told from, from the accounts that she, her desire is to, is to re-embalm his body. Like, well, why would she want to do that? Well, I told you, two guys did it in a hurry. All right? I think that, that maybe that's her thinking. All right? Somebody needs to clean this thing up. All right? Enough said. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And here's what I want you to notice as we keep reading this story. Her assumption was not that Jesus was alive. Her assumption is that someone has broken into this tomb and they have stolen his body. Nobody expected nobody. Now that's terrible English, but I don't care. It's good. Nobody expected nobody. Verse 2. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now that's John. John writes himself into the story as the one Jesus loved. We jokingly say it's kind of like John going, he loved me best. He, that's, that's, how, that's how he wanted to be known. He's the one that Jesus loved. All right. Peter and John notice they're not at the tomb. Mary's at the tomb, but they're not at the tomb. Why not? It's because they're hiding. Why would they be hiding? Well, they got to Jesus, they can get to us. If they crucify him, they can certainly crucify us. And everybody knows we followed him for th more than three years. They know we are followers. She gets to Simon Peter and the other disciple and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now, come on. Mary knows Jesus has lots of enemies. Lots of enemies. They, they even had to pay witnesses to lie in order to get him crucified. I mean, they will stop at nothing. So if these same enemies hear that Pilate has allowed Jesus to have a proper burial, are you kidding me? It would not be unlike them to actually take the body. And they don't want people coming to a tomb where Jesus is, is buried and, and remembering who he was. We're going we're gonna to take him to the garbage dump, that, that whatever they had to do, they would desecrate the body. This is horrible. First, there's a crucifixion. Now the body is stolen. And so we're told that Peter and John run to the tomb. Just like she said, it's empty. But they don't conclude in that moment that he's risen. And so they go back to the city. Mary stays at the tomb. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now, I don't even know how to tell you what emotion that must have been for her. Because I am telling you that nobody ever loved her like Jesus did. He changed her life, and then for her to not just watch him die, but she watched him crucified. I mean, he spent time with people like her that nobody else would spend time with. And now, even in his death, they, they won't even leave his body alone. She is broken. So Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, she doesn't know they're angels. 
All right, she doesn't, in all of her brokenness and all of what she's trying to process. But they are about to ask her a question that answers the age-old question that people always ask, are angels men or women? All right, are they male or female? Verse 13 answers that for us. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They are men, because only men would ask that question with a woman standing outside the tomb, right? They're men. Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, come on, this is gut-wrenching for her. Why else would they take a body unless they're going to desecrate him? They're going to try to bring even more shame to the Jesus who loved me like nobody else ever did. And then she hears something behind her. Verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, maybe it's because it's still early in the morning, the shadows, she doesn't recognize it's him, but I'm betting on this, and when we get to heaven, I'm like, I want to see the replay, because I think Jesus has the biggest grin on his face, right? She can't tell it's him, but he knows Mary is just moments away. Everything being made new. Because if Jesus is alive, everything about everything changes. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Now, I think Jesus is holding back the emotion. And then Mary there's, this is funny. What is next is funny. Okay, we don't think it's funny because we read this so serious, the whole thing. Thinking he was the gardener. Now, I'm telling we read that and we go, that's not funny. Yeah, it was. Yes, it was. I'm tell, Mary, don't you know she told this story for the rest of her life? Yes, she did. And everybody who met her, like, you're the one. You're the, you're the one who was at the tomb and you saw it. Tell us the story. And she's telling the story and she's giving all the details and she sees the angels and then there's Jesus and she gets to the part and she goes, and I thought he was the gardener. And oh, everybody laughs. They would have. They would have. Why does she think he's the gardener? Because nobody expected a resurrection. And even looking into an empty tomb, they all assume he's dead. Nobody expected. Nobody. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And in verse 16, Jesus said to her, when she hears her name and she recognizes that voice and she puts it all together and everything changes. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
And then Jesus says something that's kind of confusing, honestly. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And people write all the time, it's like, well, what does that mean? What's he talking about? Personally, I'm going to tell you what I think it means. I think Jesus is speaking in a, in a bigger context here. He's not just referring to this moment, but I think it's, it's a way of, that's translated of him saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to stay. I'm not here to stay. You, you can't hold on to me because I'm, I'm not here to stay. This is not... This is not permanent, me, me standing here with you. So go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And I'm telling you, that's a big deal. Hold on, I'll explain why. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. I have seen him. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now hear me. In the first century... Women had no credibility. If you brought a woman as a witness in the first century, you would usually be laughed out of the courtroom because nobody took that seriously. So if you want to make this up, I mean... If you want to fabricate something like to get people to believe something that didn't actually happen, but it kind of like happened, if you, if you want to build something for that, you would not have a woman be the witness because they didn't take that serious. But do you know why the Gospels say it that way? Do you know why it says that women encounter Jesus first and then they tell the men? Because that's exactly what happened? That's exactly what happened. I have seen the Lord. God has come through. Jesus is who he said he was. He is alive and that changes everything. And I'm telling you, it still changes everything. The context of our lives, every decision that we make, it is, it is in the context of the fact that we serve a Jesus who is alive. Every relationship that, 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 that we enter, it, it is connected to the fact that Jesus, he is alive. Every dream that we dream, all of our life is anchored to this event. And because of it, it really does change everything. For example, do you realize this morning, because of the resurrection, you can pray knowing God hears your prayers? Come on, do you know that today? The same Jesus who came back to life said, pray, and when you pray and talk to God, talk to him like he's your father. Now, he already knows what you need to ask for, but you know what? Ask him. Ask him anyway, because that's what he wants you to do, and that's what good fathers do. Know that he hears your prayers in secret, and he, he answers them. He rewards you openly. But get this, if a guy can die and rise from the dead, I'm going to believe him on what he said about prayer, who I'm talking to, and the difference that it makes. Jesus' resurrection substantiated everything that he said. Do you understand today that because of the resurrection, you can pray 
right now, knowing that God hears your prayers. And it's because Jesus made the way. Do you understand today that because of the resurrection, you can live knowing that there is life beyond this life? Is that good news? Yeah, Jesus talked about heaven. Most of the Jewish people of his day believed that once you die, you were done. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, there is more than this life. There is eternal life. And he said, yeah, part of that eternal life, you can know it now. When you know Jesus and his life, that eternal life is in you, you can know him now. But, oh, that, that, it gets even better because when you die and this life is done, there is all of eternity. There is heaven. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. You understand none of that made sense before a crucifixion and a resurrection, but after the resurrection, oh, my. And so now, when I sit at the funeral of a follower of Jesus, or when I stand at a graveside of a follower of Jesus, yeah, my heart grieves. Because yeah, we miss him. And it's a consequence of being able to love in this world but we don't grieve like the rest of the world because we stand at that graveside knowing that one day they will rise. And it's anchored in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you understand this morning that because of the resurrection, you can sacrifice knowing that faithfulness matters? Listen to me. When you say no to opportunities because you're following Jesus. When you say no to income because you are doing what Jesus tells you to do. When when you say no to certain relationships because you are following him. When everybody else thinks you're foolish for doing so. You can know that when you sacrifice for your Savior, what you do in this life matters for the next. Now listen to what I'm about to say. This is one of the biggest things Jesus taught, and it's one of the biggest things we love to ignore. We love to talk about the fact that heaven is real, but we totally ignore when Jesus says, what you do now matters for then. Next Sunday... I I hope you'll come back. Next Sunday, we're going to start a brand new series called Put Me In Coach. Put Me In Coach. It's going to be fun. But it's the reality. Christianity is not a spectator sport. And because it's not, there are moments that there are sacrifices that are made to follow Jesus in this life. But when that happens because of the resurrection, you can know it is worth it. I got one more. Because of the resurrection, this is the best news of all. You should trust Jesus. Because if I were sitting with you across from that table, and we're almost done with our cup of coffee, I would tell you, the issue is not what the church has done wrong in history. And the issue is not what so-called Christians have even done to you. I'm sorry that that happened, but that's not the issue. The issue 
is who is Jesus? And on Easter, the answer was given exactly who he claimed to be. He is Savior, he is King, and he is worth your consideration. You should trust Jesus. Like, how do we do that? Well, we're about to sing a song that within the lyrics of this song, it really talks about how we do that. And so in the next few moments, I'm, I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and then we're, we're going to sing it. And as, as we're singing this song, I want you to think about Mary. Think about Mary being at that tomb. Think about that, that moment of sorrow, that moment of hopelessness, that moment of disappointment. And I'm saying for, for, for some of us and maybe a lot of us in, that, in this room, that's not a hard moment for us to imagine because it describes maybe where you are right now. But in a matter of minutes, everything changed for her. What if that could happen for you today? Here's the lyrics to the song we're about to sing. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. See, that's the question we all have to wrestle with. What do I do about my sin? A God who is holy, a God who loves me, but I have, I have done wrong. I, my sin separates me from God. And even if I could stop it all, Today, even if I could stop doing all the stuff that I know I'm supposed to stop doing today, what do I do about all that junk, all that past, all that shame, all that regret? How do you begin again? Here's what it says Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested in my life. Here's the answer. The cross was God's once and for all declaration. That he loves you. And he made a way for you. A way that your sin could be forgiven. Completely forgiven. A God who will erase and who will never bring it up against you again. When there is forgiveness, the opportunity that he would live in you. See, the life you were created for doesn't begin at first breath. It begins when you believe. Ash was redeemed. I love that line. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. See, that's the key to this whole thing. What, what is that about? What, is, what does it mean, redeemed? It means God takes what others think has no value and God gives it value. You may look at your life and you think about what you've done. You think about the regrets. You think about the past. You think about the weekends. You think about the stuff. and You think there is no hope and God says, a greatest price I will pay. And ash is redeemed. An orphan's heart, our orphan's heart was given a name. 
Mary. Mary. Death was arrested. And my life began. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And I'm encouraging you to take this moment to begin again. There are going to be some folks who are right over here on this wall. Um, You may see people head that direction. It's because it's a time where people who have hurts, people who have needs, it's a place where people will just pray for them. It's not something that happens in front of a whole crowd. It's just a private conversation there where somebody will pray for you. They'll encourage you. Maybe you. This needs to be your day to say, I want to begin again. And they'll help you to take those steps to turn to Jesus. I'll pray. We'll sing. God, thank you for the truth of a death and a resurrection that was unlike any other. It has changed everything for us. And on this day, God, I'm asking you to give those of us who need for the first time to trust in you, God, give us courage to trust. God, give us faith to believe on this day, new life. I thank you for what you're about to do because you are alive and you are here. It's in the risen name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. Let's stand.